So last week, the Indian government announced this new payments system uh, that they call e-rupee. Did you hear about that? Yeah, it's it's a one-time payment thing, right? Basically, it's, like a digital voucher, like Sodexo coupons, essentially. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's some, it's like creating coupons, like you mentioned. So the government or some other, it could be a private entity, could issue these digital vouchers that are basically QR codes or some sort of code that uh, you would receive on your phone uh, that will allow you to make payments at certain vendors or shops or get certain services. So for now, it looks like the government is trying to uh, distribute uh, vaccine coupons to people in certain areas and they would get a QR code and all they need to do is show that QR code at the hospital that they choose to uh, visit to get their vaccinations. And uh, the user themselves don't need to have an internet connection to facilitate this transaction because all they're showing is the link and then the the vendor would like scan that and then connect and get a, get a transfer from uh, whoever issued that voucher, in this case, the government. Okay. And you're saying it's being used for vaccines now, but I'm assuming this could probably be stretched out to things like rations and any other government-provided services. Ideally, that would be the first step, right, as a welfare program. Yeah, exactly. So it could be, uh, like I said, rations. I think... They've spoken about uh, subsidies for uh, like cooking gas and petrol, mm. uh, subsidies for electricity, but also for corporates or even government companies, like uh, public sector companies, right. to give additional benefits and stuff for their employees or to people. So like expense for coupons for food and for travel. Exactly, like exactly. So expense coupons for uh, for food. Uh, they could also do scholarships for students. So they like, you know how sometimes they say your scholarship to buy uh, things that you would need for school and college. Right. So like normally it's a bit hard on how, uh, like how to regulate. You'd probably like have to go get a bill and then show that uh, to the sponsor. But in this case, they could just give you a voucher for a certain amount that can be used at a, uh, at a certain ca- category of stores, a specific store. Right. And it can be checked against uh, receipts electronically as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so all of this entire like, thing is like an additional feature on top of the existing UPI payments uh, interface that most of the banks in India are using now, and that's how we do all of our uh, mobile digital payments, all the Paytm, Google Pay type stuff. Right. And it's just cool that they are trying to sort of create new value in that, uh, in that system. That they're trying to find other uh, new features that can try to create new ways of doing payments and not just a direct transfer from A to B. Right. I think an interesting thing you brought up when we were texting earlier was um, that you said this kind of coincided with the, or not not um, UPI and EUP specifically, but the rise in digital payments in India kind of also... Um, coincided with the rise in awareness and kind of knowledge about cryptocurrency here. Yeah. And and they're trying to take like a couple of facets from, you know, the crypto network and kind of re-in- reinterpret it or reinterpolate it into the current payments infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Like what we're seeing with uh, this e system and also some of the other features like 
uh, UPI mandates. I'm not going to get too deep into that, but that's also another like uh, like a promissory like contract that you could have like on a future payment. Uh, but like these are all like additional features on top of a direct transfer that's very similar to the things that we see in Ethereum and some of those other blockchain cryptocurrencies where you could have application logic that uh, binds a certain payment based on certain, some conditions. And mm. also just crypto in general, like it's been booming for the last almost 10 years or so. And I think quite timely, uh, it's been about almost exactly five years since demonetization happened in yeah. India. So at, at that point, we like as a country had to suddenly like start relying on cash a lot less and have to start using these mobile wallets and digital payment solutions pretty much everywhere. So in the middle of the demonetization thing that happened, right? So we were at campus and I think I had literally just gotten rid of my last 500 rupee note and I'd brought it down to like small change. Yeah. Just as demonetization hit. Um, and no shop around us at that time, like around campus at that time was taking Paytm in any, mm. in any form. They all had to set up Paytm wallets like in the middle of this crisis where we couldn't, we couldn't go to ATMs. And even if we did, we'd have to wait in line for like two hours and, and we may not even get money at that point. So demonetization kind of forced everyone to reevaluate how they kind of perceive value. Because earlier Paytm was kind of looked at a thing of like, we don't want to use it. It's a last ditch effort. And then like through demonetization, people started looking at Paytm, phone pay and Google pay as like, oh, it's just more convenient to use this. We don't have to carry around a, a wad of cash wherever we go. So even at college, all of us kind of reevaluated what value meant from yeah. physical to digital and i think the country as a whole had to quickly adapt to that just because of the loss of like 500,000 rupee notes and the it like the the systems like the financial system wasn't really prepared to provide alternative uh, bills to the people which is why there was such a confusion and yeah, yeah. forced to uh, take uh, different steps yeah, the 500 and 2,000 rupee notes, I think there were a bunch of problems in the printing plates, which I had read about. Like, there weren't enough of them available or um, they weren't able to get, like, a scale of printing ready. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what, like, made the cash flow kind of tough at that point. Like, we couldn't get it ready. Yeah. Um, but I think it kind of worked out because digital, uh, digital payment platforms, especially with the introduction of e-rupee and... Uh, like the mandate feature that you brought up, all of these yeah. kind of pick on one fairly key aspect of cryptocurrency, which is the transparency that is available in like blockchain tra blockchain transactions. I stumbled over that a bit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, like blockchain transactions, like I was seeing um, a video about, you know, the rise in altcoins mm -hmm. and the the big way to figure out a scam in altcoins that like was brought up by you know more more knowledgeable individuals than me but from what i saw they were basically able to track uh, transactions on the blockchain and were like able to pinpoint which wallet addresses were probably owned by a person and like everything traces back to one or two wallet addresses 
this is like a very very um unknowledgeable kind of take on uh, on the nuances <laughs> of blockchain transactions but it's transparency right at the end of it that's that's kind of like a key um a key fa- a key facet of the of the entire cryptocurrency movement correct so yeah like i think there are two slightly diff- like significantly uh, different approaches in like the right. upi system and the blockchain system of course yeah yeah but because like blockchain was is like a lot of it is so that it's decentralized and deregulated by a single bot a single entity uh, the whole point of our current payment infrastructure with upi is that it's completely uh, regulated by uh, by the government by not yeah by by the government, government essentially yeah. government and and the banks and the right bank yeah yeah so of course there is a lot more transparency on that their side they know Mm-hmm. like the volume of transactions who's making the transactions uh, right. all of that kind of data is being made available when you really have no idea what's going on uh, on a regulation standpoint for like person to person cash transactions yeah which may or may not be a good thing but it's one of the ca- like the the side effects of uh, of this approach yeah i mean i think the big thing i was kind of getting out of the comparison between crypto and um, you know digital payments as we're talking about is just that you know it's a lot more transparent it's a lo- it, you're able to account for things a lot easier i guess mm. Mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that they take the same approaches um in yeah, enabling yeah, yeah. that transparency it's yeah. just that the end point is the same yeah uh, also an, another thing is like uh, like s- somewhat to ke- continue that parallel Mm-hmm. uh when we started switching over to digital wallets uh we were like like paytm google pay they're all still using the rupee as the currency yeah. so essentially like we are we believe that we are sending over a certain amount like we are sending over a certain amount well if we put in 100 rupees and pay i pay that to you it would make a bank transaction of that exact amount to your bank right mm-hmm. so effectively it's the same amount as if i gave you a 100 rupee note so i feel like that was one of the characteristics that made people have a certain like like more trust in this system than mm-hmm. uh crypto just because we are sort of familiar with the rupee we know like Yeah, we're trading it, in like recognized fiat currency essentially, right? Exactly. Even though it's coming in a different form as like a digital thing, we don't really we're not really handling the notes. We have seen digital banking, so we've like it's like it felt very a lot of familiar aspects, but just something slightly different because we uh, people are not as used to buying groceries or vegetables or uh just like random services. using a like a bank transfer that that felt like uh almost it was kind risky. of novel yeah it was novel and like sort of risky in a way like mm. i can't really explain the risk but it's like people are scared of change and that change uh felt significant but still something that people were willing to get around because it felt familiar at the same time i think the risk was basically we had to shift our perception of value from the physical thing of having notes in our hand to a digital valuation where we know that we have the money in our account 
and usually we just go to an atm and pull out the representation of those of that value you know we pull out physical representations whereas now everything is digitized so the risk was basically shifting from that physical representation to understanding how the digital representation worked but yeah you're right there was there was definitely a risk uh, attached to you know the shift yeah exactly because it comes with building that trust that when uh, mm-hmm. google pay says that you have 25000 in your account like just knowing that like like it is actually per- correctly linked to what your bank account has because mm-hmm. maybe you've built a certain level of trust with your bank to know that when they say that you have 25 you have 25000 yeah but now a, another app is telling you that and transactions are happening on the daily you mm-hmm. it takes time for people to build that level of trust again i guess that's the sort of thing but yeah like i think the good thing is the the really good thing that came out of de- came out of demonetization was even small shops So earlier I think uh, there were a lot of big stores that were starting to use digital payment platforms and like enabling digital payment mm-hmm. but many uh, small shops like you know cigarette shops and you know panwadis as we call them um, mm-hmm. and small um, corner store kind of uh, grocery stores and vegetable vendors none of them were very comfortable in using digi- uh, digital payments yeah a lot of them were not comfortable or didn't even have bank accounts <coughs> so yeah. having digital wallets required people to first start a bank account if they didn't already have one and if they did have one to actually use it uh frequently so I, like yeah yeah and i think demonetization kind of coincided with another fairly big revolution which was geo in that they made data available to a lot of people i mean mobile mm-hmm. data and internet and through that people realized okay we can get on this kind of financial grid basically by creating yeah. a bank account by starting up a payments wallet we are now effectively in the system so yeah. it makes things a lot easier for them to build up they can build up credit they can actually do business at scale a lot easier yeah. which is yeah. which is how which is why a lot of vegetable vendors and you know corner side shops and you know panwadis and all they've started using paytm they've started using gpay just because now it's a lot more efficient and a lot easier for them to get their payments done through mm. that rather than having to rely on cash mm. I, and i think it's absolutely interesting that even small stores are willing to make that quick shift from physical to digital valuation right you know it makes you think about what value really is when it comes to currency yeah cuz like when you think of even the physical note that we use mm. I mean like if you look at it on a I mean physical level the yeah. a note that says 500 rupees is not really worth uh in terms of material or yeah yeah like 500 rupees it's just that the system the value, like yeah. we have trust in this like financial system where when the 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 reserve bank has printed a note with 500 rupees we know that we could use this to get a certain value of goods at any place in the country yeah so i'm just like like fascinated by how we've built even trust in that like changing over from uh goods that were of value to us on a daily uh need like whether it was like precious metals like gold or whatever or gems mm. or even things like salt or pepper yeah that last a long time and are of daily immediate value to people 
but we've switched over to something that's a lot more abstract and when you said like when you were talking about the physical thing of the notes the notes are the notes have value as a consequence of a promise made by the institution like if you look at the 500 rupee note it doesn't like it just says uh i promise to pay the bearer of this note fi- uh the value of 500 rupees or something like that mm. something something to um that ex- uh to that effect and it's it's yeah, yeah yeah it's the promise basically that the government is offering you 500 rupees in credit which is you know b- uh, it's based on some financial standard uh i don't know enough about you know economics and stuff to really get into that mm. but it's basically the 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 value of currency is not the it's not actually the value itself it's just the promise of that value that right. allows you to purchase things so it's it's all a form of credit that's mm. happening and again like to get a bit into my <laughs> into my uh, artsy humanities kind of thing yeah. uh credit and credit and debit both of them come from latin words so credit um comes from credo which you mm-hmm. know is, it's the basis of both credit and creed both of which are forms of belief credit is the financial form of belief where you financial and social form where oh you no. kind of give someone that thing of like okay i believe they will carry out their promises versus creed which is like everyone sharing a same uh, sharing the same belief system and therefore building it as mm-hmm. like a social structure so that's one and then debit both debt and debit come from debitum which in okay. latin just means thing owed mm. so debit when you debit money into someone's account you, you're just basically saying okay i owe you this much and therefore i am crediting this amount to you mm. and same thing with debt debt is just you know you owe me this amount i just thought i just thought it's like a <laughs> very cool tangent to kind of bring up um mm, mm, mm. you know etymology often reveals a lot of things and in this case it reveals kind of underlying structures i think between belief and uh money yeah i mean like you said like if it's like a a transaction of trust between the two the two parties where you're like i'm giving you this thing that you believe is real and i'm telling you is real and that yeah. the entire system accepts that it has this value so yeah. I, like the f- like the fact that the the word is rooted in that just makes it a, a, like a lot more uh, i guess valid in a certain way <laughs> it's just like yeah it completely makes sense that the entire currency system is just you're transacting in trust <laughs> yeah i think it's it's also just like i think you said this earlier money is only worth what someone else is willing to give you for that money yeah so it's it's like you said entirely built on like this abstract form of like trust and belief which has slowly gotten codified um and again i think this might be a bit hand view hand wavy to a lot of people who are like listening in so um there's this guy, there's a slightly unrelated example which i think might help you um and this is again from another podcast i was listening to mm-hmm. so um long story short uh, wait what's the name a, of the podcast uh this is uncomfortable okay 
so that's the name of the podcast and it talks about how money intersects with like relationships and personal life and you know like just very interesting ways in which people can kind of harness or weaponize money in their relationships to kind of solve problems so the very uh, not the very first sorry the second or third episode was basically about this couple who were constantly fighting over household chores and they came to this creative kind of um solution to their problems which was the wife would pay the husband you know a certain amount of money every month to do the chores on her time mm. she's basically so by paying him she's kind of giving him emotional credit in the sense that okay i am paying you this much money in the belief that you will do things as i ask you to do it Mm. and therefore he's 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 they they've created a contract there mm. so money can work in a very similar way in the sense that it kind of helps you codify these abstract beliefs of abstract concepts of belief and trust into you know more easily understandable physical transactions yeah. that's about the extent of the example i don't really, i don't really want to get into it more no but that's uh, interesting cuz the fact that uh, she's willing to pay to ease her emotional burden yeah means that like we as humans also place like a monetary value on our emotional state or reducing our burden like physically or emotionally and it's not just things like physical objects of use are not the mm-hmm. only sources of value it's also work done by others for your sake that right would basically like free up your time or make you happier in different ways like those are sort of what makes us build va- like value in, in I mean it's why the service economy exists right or the service and labor economies they exist by converting human work um be it physical emotional or mental they convert mm. our labor into monetary standards so that you know people can earn wages to buy the sustenance right. um it's it's why we pay for things like therapy by our or you know we we contract people to like you know build a house or clean stuff exactly. money money has this really really weird um space where you know at once it is alienating and it kind of helps us recontextualize things in our own belief systems and you know in how we trust our things right it's why systems like communism have had such a hard time like i don't want to again get into the ideological <laughs> thing right. you know um, but you know it's it's why karl marx said money is alienating because we're attaching value to a man's labor and we're kind mm. of reducing him to a commodity when 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 you're trying to um when you're trying to get someone else to do work for you you have to build trust with them and that often takes time so money yeah, is just yeah. an easy way to commodify and to break down that trust in such a way that okay i am entrusting this much money to you and i i'm believing that you will get the work done yeah so, so essentially in essence every contract needs like an equivalent uh offer on the table like there yeah. needs to be an like whatever you're giving you need to get an equivalent like thing from the other person so the law that of equivalent could, exchange as edward elric said yeah i yeah i, <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing but sure 
full metal alchemist dude like oh, oh okay, okay 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 yeah, yeah it's an anime <laughs> the way you said the name like i just thought it was like a genuine person but anyway <laughs> yeah uh, so like if you are willing to do like spend 5 10 hours doing chores that primarily benefit the other person you want like typically as people at least in our current culture we want something in return for that whether yeah. it is uh it could be more time spent with that person like that could be something that we have value in it could be some other uh benefit like maybe they would uh take you out for a meal and pay for it or it could be uh a gift it could be money itself it could be mm-hmm. a lot of different things that we ascribe value to and it's just that money is one of those things that is so present in our culture that we can like fairly easily put value on that because we know that we can use it to get benefits in various different ways while a lot of the other things might only suit one single task like if you get a kilogram of salt in in return for doing some work there's not much you can do with that salt because it's very difficult to just sell that to someone else in, mm. in return for something you're just going to have to use that for your cooking but like if you were to get an equal amount of money it's very easy to choose what you want to do with that you could take your, yourself out to the spa you could uh, buy something for yourself you could have some nice food you could just keep it save it and use it at a later point there's a lot of flexibility in that uh thing with the way especially like i need to stress that it's because of the way that our society is right now where yeah. you are able to use money to get a lot of services and benefits in different ways yeah it's kind of how we've transitioned from you know barter systems and actually even i won't even say transition really because even back in like the mesopotamian days this is something i was reading in um the ascent of money by neil ferguson even in like the sumerian civilization and so on they yeah. had very primitive forms of credit and debit mm. where you know it wasn't just the barter system they had clay tablets which were basically like pay this pay the bearer of this tablet this certain amount of wheat or this certain amount of like whatever whatever um, currency was basically being used at that time for right. barter and i think you know something like that while obviously it's a lot more primitive than the kind of really really complex economic systems that we have now it's it's such an interesting precursor to how everything kind of builds up cuz even those clay tablets is a codification of belief and trust that you will get something at the end of your journey you know you'll get something at the end of like what would have been easily a week long a month long kind of trek through a fairly fairly challenging land to get to another marketplace and sell whatever produce was it in mesopotamia like uh, there was this one like almost like a meme of the salesman who was selling something to someone else and he had to write a complaint letter because he wasn't happy with the services do you know what i'm talking about no 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 i've i've not come across this <laughs> um but yeah i think you know like you go from you go from uh, this kind of clay tablets and then you go from Uh, that the like barter system still being in place then moving on to coins you know fungible coins yeah. made of precious metals and um that being used as currency yeah. then moving to like paper notes 
uh, hold up we need i think we need to describe fungible in this in this okay, uh, context yeah. yeah 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 um so fungible basically just means that um if i have two 500 rupee notes they're basically indistinct indistinguishable like right. if i swap them it makes no difference so fungible um fungible in when it comes to like precious metal coins would just basically mean that one gold coin is the same as any other gold coin within that region within you know yeah. or 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 according to a certain weight and and size standard whatever they used to like measure measure coins back then to determine value yeah you That's, can swap yeah. out any one piece of it with another one and they're essentially the same yeah so also <laughs> also yeah. like uh, coming back to the thing you said about mesopotamia mm-hmm. uh it reminded me of this complaint tablet uh to e nasir it's like a super niche thing that i just i i know this for some reason because people were making fun of it on uh facebook but this was this is i think the the oldest recorded complaint letter that we have in human history i think it's uh from about 4000 years ago from uh-huh. uh, mesopotamia and it was just a, like a very <laughs> like typical complaint note that you would see on yelp or zomato or something on a research so there's this guy <laughs> inasir who traveled to a different city to buy copper and mm-hmm. he wanted to sell it in mesopotamia and he agreed to sell the copper to this guy called nani and nani sent his servant uh with money to complete the transaction right uh the copper was substandard and it was not accepted so then this guy nani created a letter uh like back to inasir with a complaint uh, like how poor the quality of the <laughs> copper was and that and that he wants another delivery <laughs> like it's just so fa- he also complained that his servant was treated poorly when that servant had come to pick up the the copper <laughs> thing and i just find it so fascinating that like 4000 years ago we were still quibbling about like very yeah. similar things <laughs> It's, a, it's pretty much the same thing as like a zomato thing. Oh, the food was substandard. We didn't get exactly what we asked for. We're yeah. sending it back with hope that you will send like a refund or something. And I heard I heard from the delivery uh, guy that the restaurant made him wait unnecessarily or like yeah, it yeah. was unpleasant in different ways. Like it's, it feels yeah. very much like that. So I just wanted to pick that up. 4000 years and we've not changed at all. Yeah, okay. I just checked it. It's from 1750 BC. Yeah, dude, that's age. <laughs> that's actually almost 4000 years ago. Yeah, that's incredible. Man. So I think this is uh currently at the British Museum like everything ever. <laughs> uh Yeah, I mean just getting back to um the idea of like how currency has evolved, right? Right. right. I mean, while we may not have our our, our systems of valuation definitely have Mm-hmm. and it's it's really interesting about um just just the trans the transition from you know barter and these kind of clay tablets to uh, trade for commodities mm-hmm. then having like an intermediary kind of um system where you know precious metals were used to you know create fungible coins which you could mm-hmm. uh kind of deposit in banks and trade for other things then we moved to paper uh yeah. paper money and like fiat currencies which is which is what we're currently using in our system. Yeah. And so even even with the currency that we use uh right now, like mm. a, a lot of countries 
started off by connecting the value of uh, say the US dollar originally was pegged to gold and yeah, the, the government gold standard, would, right exactly the gold standard so the government would claim that uh, for every say $30 that you have we have this amount of in weight of gold in our reserves mm-hmm. uh, over time like that value let that peg would change like the yeah. the conversion rate between gold to dollar but they were still promising that there is an amount of gold that we hold in reserve and people were basically essentially trading in gold uh like proxied using the dollar i think and, but until as recently as 1938 or 1940 the gold standard was still being held i think so it's quite possible i don't countries. know too much about the history of that but i know that okay, that's oh yeah, how it I, used to be <laughs> just to clarify neither do i i'm just trying to remember what i read in a set of money which talked about the gold standard uh, <laughs> right but yeah. like it's but, just fascinating that like it's taken a very like step by step path mm. so like people still were not of course like they had trust in gold as a currency and then had to switch slowly <laughs> none of this has been like too abrupt of a change people just wouldn't accept that uh like even at the, the pound was probably pegged with something similar and then the indian rupee mm-hmm. was was uh initially connected in value to the pound and then later on uh all of these countries started like decoupling uh it from yeah. physical assets and that's like fiat currency as it is right now and it i mean just just as i think the the last big point that we kind of want to talk about is why did gold you know have the value that it did like why did precious metals have the value that they did you know why were they used as a standard for so long um like i think from from like the moment civilization itself was recorded gold silver and to some extent copper and bronze We're platinum palladium like on a rarer scale but yeah. yeah a platinum palladium i don't know if they were as widespread in terms of like yeah i don't think they were they were known as long ago <laughs> but yeah yeah gold and silver definitely were yeah. two of the most widely spread um precious metals that were used for currency making specifically yeah. and yeah. so why did they have the value that they did right is it like at my first thought is like is it just as simple as Oh wow, shiny! I like shiny. Uh, I think I think that definitely plays some some uh, aspect. You know, like um, I think it was um, it was uh, something I read in um, in like a Tanzaki essay about okay. Japanese aesthetics and the use of gold dust and um, gold uh, fab- gold thread in fabrics, and just just the fact that back then they probably had only candlelight. they didn't have the kind of bright electric lights that we have obviously mm. Mm. and so in candlelight gold and silver are just a lot more lustrous and mm. they add a lot more depth so just the aesthetic value itself may have made people value gold and silver more than any other metal mm. but it's also i think to some extent the fact that gold and silver maintain a certain form like they remain lustrous for a long time they don't tarnish very easily they don't rust very easily mm. and so they they maintain that that appeal for a long time and that may have made people believe in their long 
in their like longevity a bit okay. more which is why they were they were sort of used as a standard um for storing value which is kind of like one of the few uh, key aspects of money itself so yeah i think that kind of plays a that plays a role in why gold silver and all was so important and of course the other one is that they were rare like yeah. even though it was spread all around the world they mm-hmm. are still pretty rare to find at least maybe compared to iron or a lot of the other like yeah. non metallic resources as well like a lot of those iron you- sand copper any of exactly things. exactly right the rarity itself makes it like a thing that you need to put in a lot of effort to be able to get a certain amount of it and if you are capable of just hoarding a room full of gold that must show like how much in excess of power and resources you must have but you want to know something cool though no matter how much <laughs> silver and go? gold you have oh yeah this is a small story by the way no matter how much silver and gold you have it doesn't stop you from like losing to change as right. as like a physical force because the i think the king of spain hmm. i think this is back in like the 15 or 1600s you know uh when they reached argentina um so argentina is called so because it's literally the land of argent the land of silver hmm. they were able to mine so much silver in argentina that the spanish treasury was literally almost full of it like they could stockpile houses of silver mansions mm. of silver so they basically devalued silver so much that <laughs> it was basically worth nothing uh, and yeah. they weren't willing to um they weren't willing to part with that physical representation of worth and of strength and of economic pro- uh, prosperity in favor of you know banknotes in favor of paper currency which is how um, a lot of european nations at that time was slowly moving towards right and that's yeah, what because like, like if you have a lot of something and don't really have a use for yeah. it the value like like yeah, sort banking. of like, exactly so basically that that hoarding of silver the in the unwillingness to kind of trade and you know use it basically all mm. of that and a lack of um a lack of willingness to to shift to paper currency and like kind of broaden trade with places beyond like belgium and antwerp and so on yep. that that basically led to the spanish uh the spanish monarchy defaulting on a bunch of loans they'd taken and thus it caused financial instability civil unrest and so on so forth it completely weakened the empire just as a, as a result of having too much value on their hands yeah it's like they had too much of it yeah and yeah. obviously the value like the drops because you have so much of it don't really have a use for it but yeah. they're refusing to accept that the value is dropping so it yeah, becomes yeah. a sort of crisis right it's 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 just so it's incredible that even back then they had a similar thing to our demonetization um struggle that we had you know just shifting valuations and they yeah, weren't they willing to shift whereas in this case we've tried to make the shift do you have any idea like uh, did they switch over to finding some other material as like the the new fancy or no i think just they, like they just kind slow of decline and like sort of stabilized yeah it was a slow decline and they just kind of had to 
pick up paper currency and you know in order to like just trade right. um, with other countries like just as a way to stabilize the economy and kind of get things back to a certain par they they had to like i haven't even finished the book yet but there's so much there's so much in in there uh goes to say neither of us are economists a lot of what we've said <laughs> may be wrong we're not historians and <laughs> neither of us are blessed with great memory either so we may be wrong in a lot of facts yeah but like there is um money is a difficult thing to talk about not just because you know it makes things weird but also because it is at the core like we've said before it is just a a physical embodiment of trust and belief yeah and talking about embodying emotions in like a physical form is usually the realm of something like neuroscience whereas here we're bringing it into things that we use in daily life that we trade for that we try and utilize hmm. and you know make talking about uh, such concepts that are usually kind of abstract and in the realm of academia bringing them into daily utility kind of i think unsettles me a little and so money is just a mm. complex and tough field to talk about not even not even um considering all the interconnected webs of global finance that are happening right now it's like the more you find out like what you're actually placing your belief in and mm. also the capabilities of what you can do with yeah. this uh device yeah uh, it it really makes you question a lot of your personal beliefs uh, a lot of like our cultural direction a lot of yeah, those things yeah. so yeah that that's what makes it difficult I'm with you on that and it makes me curious to just read up more about history like why you know and how these these systems kind of slowly built up and also the question of is there an alternative could could there like have been a long lasting productive in equots society that didn't run so strongly on money mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, could there have been societies that didn't function with, you know, um no- notions of credit and debit? You know, were there other ways that they could have made um embodiments of like human emotion? Um or if did they need that kind of thing at all? You know, were there other metrics by which they could measure worth and time and so on and so forth? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, this has been a bit of our dumb dive into money. but we yeah. now have an instagram account <laughs> so you can follow us there at dumb dive podcast and on twitter at dumb dive yeah you find any of those you'll get the links to contact us on any means and yeah. do reach out uh let us know if we did something right wrong <laughs> if we were uh if we need more um, anecdotes in our podcast cuz i think there's a ton of great stories we can probably dig up for for each episode and ideas uh, for future podcasts as well yeah please let us know ideas um please let us know what you'd like us to talk about in the future and uh, so until next episode this is pranav and this is arvin thanks for listening <laughs>